Hello, and welcome back to the More Than Running podcast with me, your host, Dana Giordano. This week, we're joined by the, for the first time with a co-host, Daniel Wynn. Daniel Wynn is a professional runner who lives and trains in Brooklyn, New York. Daniel's coming on this week to give an inside scoop of our guest as he was teammates with her. Our guest this week is Jen Rines. Jen is one of the most accomplished American distance runners. She's made 15 Team USA, including three Olympic teams. In the Sydney Olympics in 2000, she made the 10K. In the Athens Olympics in 2004, the marathon. And in a turn of events, the casual marathon back down to the 5,000 meters in Beijing in 2008. Jen has been an Adidas athlete for over 20 years. And from her website, she is very proud that she ranks top 10 U.S. all-time in the 3K, 5K, and 10K currently. We speak about her longevity in the sport and how most of her PRs came between the ages of 33 and 36. On this episode, we learn about Jen's introduction to pro running, what she thinks has attributed to her successes, an inside look of her Olympic experiences, which is always my favorite, her favorite races, places to train, and much more. Daniel and I definitely bounce around Jen's career and expose what fans we are, but I think it's definitely a fun way to get a little bit deeper on the stories behind making the teams and the training along the way. Jen now lives and trains in San Diego with the Golden Coast Track Club, which is led by her husband, Terrence. I'm a huge fan of Jen and her story of working hard and achieving marginal gains year over year. It's definitely inspiring to me as an athlete, and I hope you all can gain something from her positive attitude and outlook on the sport. Please enjoy this episode with Jen Rines. I have a very special guest today, Jen Rines, and we're also here with a special co-host, which is new to me, Daniel Wynn. Welcome, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hey, glad to be here. So we're three corners. I'm up here in Boston, Jen's in San Diego, and Daniel is in New York City. So we're in the two Corona hubs, and yeah. <laughs> hopefully San Diego is doing a little bit better right now. Yeah, we're. I think we're in the flattening the curve area because it's like it, you guys have dropped off. We're kind of continuing to go steady, but not as you know, not as severe. So we're getting there. I think we're all getting there. <laughs> have you guys been able to meet as a team? We're actually not able to meet as a team. No, they haven't changed like regulations in terms of meeting in groups here yet. So we're like hoping that's going to come soon. So does your coach just like email you workouts or? Uh... So yet Terrace has been meeting people like individually. Um, yeah, obviously my coach is, is right here, <laughs> uh, my husband. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we've, we've met with a few people one-on-one, but we haven't, you know, been doing like, um, official team practice. Yeah. It's definitely super weird and kind of hard to know when it's the right time to meet. Cause you don't want to be the first ones and you don't want to break rules, but people need to right. see each other. I mean, I have been hearing, um, like I heard that New Jersey is allowing like groups of 25 to meet now. So I was, I don't know if that's, I like heard that from a friend. So I don't know if that's a hundred percent true, but I'm like hoping those, you know, we can meet in groups of 10 or 15, like relatively soon. We'll see. <laughs> well, so to take us to a time pre-corona and pre-weirdness, I think we want to start kind of at the beginning of your career, which is kind of a post Villanova time period for um, talking about your long, illustrious professional career. So I listened to a couple other podcasts on you and did 
did as much research as I can. And Daniel's my backup here, so <laughs> he can definitely support. But I, I wanted to just dig a little bit deeper on um, how you started your career. And it's especially interesting to me, kind of, um, I worked for a couple of years, but now kind of restarting my career hearing um, from you. So you graduated from Villanova, where you were a multiple time All-American, NCLA champion. And from the pockets of what I learned is that you started in Philadelphia, uh, oh, not Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah, Where's no, all- that's correct. I yeah. was in Philadelphia, but Matt Centrowitz um, was my coach, and he was based down in D.C. In D.C., but you yeah. had a job. Yeah, so I kind of went through, like, I would say a couple-year transition out of college. I, we, you know, we didn't have, like, the same type of group training situation set up as we do now. And I definitely wanted to continue running. And I, you know, met um, Matt Centrowitz Sr. through Terrence. Um, He was coaching Terrence at the time. And I just kind of clicked with him. Um, I met him at the 96 Olympic trials. And Matt's like super blunt, but I'm like totally fine with that. And I think like it works well for me, super just straightforward. So we kind of just hit it off. And he didn't really have a group of women at the time, but he had what he called his five o'clock group, which he had some guys that you were know, like sub training to run sub elite times. And he was like, well, Terrence comes down to run with what was then called the Reebok Enclave training group, kind of based more in Georgetown with Matt and Gags. And Matt was also um, over at American University and had some guys that he worked out right after that. So he started coaching me kind of like by phone, but also I would go down once a week in the beginning, mainly once a week and, you know, meet up with a group and do one workout that he could see in person down there. And in the meantime, I was working part time that first year and running. And it was definitely like a transition for me. And I, in college, I majored in engineering. So I was used to being like super busy and I was a little bit lost with like having the, like I was working part-time, but not in something that was really, it wasn't like a career, something I was going to pursue as a career. And I felt a little bit lost and it was kind of a transition year. You know, that first year out, I didn't run terrible, but I didn't run as well as I wanted to. So I was like, maybe I should just like work full-time and run. So Mm -hmm. then I got a full-time job at the Vanguard Group, a mutual fund company, kind of because I knew they were somewhat, like I knew some other like higher level runners that had worked there because it again, wasn't in my, like it wasn't in engineering. It was like, you know, mutual fund company. Yeah, it was like something that I could have potentially also, you know, branched into. So I did that and then realized kind of midway through that I wasn't doing either thing well. And Mm -hmm. I actually had... I had a small con. I had a small contract with Reebok, which um, was terminated like at the end of my first year, and it was one of those things where even um, even like some people, they basically had to, they couldn't afford to keep people, so mm-hmm. there was a clause they used to terminate that, and there was even some people that ran great that year that like they weren't able to keep, so it was just one of those. Sounds things. like a classic story. <laughs> but it it really gave me the push and the right to make a decision of whether because I'd also been passed over for a few like opportunities at work because I wasn't willing to work overtime because I would go, yeah. I would like try to rush out to go train, so I, I just put in my face like I need to make a decision of what I'm doing here. And I still wanted, you know, 
to run and see what I could do. So luck, fortunately for me, right, I went part-time at work to kind of transition this through and I had two really good races. I was obviously really motivated and I wanted to find another sponsor. Um, like I won the gate river run 15 K us champs when Lynn Jennings, who was the favorite wow. at the time got sick and couldn't show up. So I kind of <laughs> took that opportunity. I like, you know, made the $10,000. I was like, this is awesome. I had another really good race that year where I made another big sum of money. And I was like, okay, now I'm good where I can, I have enough money to live off of so I can mm -hmm. transition into full-time running. So I kind of needed that. It was, you know, that push to like, to go one way or the other. Um, yeah. and then if we kind of like fast forward a couple of years later, I made my first Olympic team under Matt in the 10 K in in 2000. And that, you know, in 99 and 2000, I started traveling with Dina Castor and Amy Rudolph and became, you know, kind of developed this like tight circle of running friends. Mm -hmm. So we went on to post 2000, you know, Coach V Hill and Coach Larson started to set up some training camps. So where we would also like start to work together. So yeah. that kind of transitioned towards bringing back the idea like, of having like more organized training groups. So that was my long-winded transition <laughs> to professional running. <laughs> well, it's definitely something that I relate to a lot. And I mean, it makes me feel really good to hear that. And I'm sure Daniel as well, because we're kind of figuring it out. Of, I, I worked full time and kind of had that right. similar feeling. Where you're, you're sitting at your desk. You don't want to be there when you're at the track at six in the morning. You don't, you're rushing to get back to work. So right. you're just kind of caught between the two worlds and you kind of, ask people what they should do and no one can really tell you except for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It kind of, I think sometimes you just, you have those life situations that force you to figure it out. And like, for me, I think sometimes I need those because I'll just stay stuck in that routine a little too long and still until something really gives me that push that like, I have to make a decision. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes, I mean, what you're saying with the financial situation with losing a contract too can light your fire to win a race right. or two. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think like for me, if I look back in my whole career and just when I like you hear stories of other athletes, I think that when someone tells you you can't do something, I mean, it just really fires you up to prove them wrong. And I think I've always that's always fired me up like through my whole career. Yeah. And it's something that I mean, you had a very successful collegiate career, but things weren't necessarily stable when you came out. Like, they, as you said, there weren't training groups, there weren't like these nice setups, it's, we kind of seem a little bit spoiled now with how many options there are to come out straight out of school. But I mean, I think it's evolved in a great way, though, to actually to have those opportunities to, I think it makes for like a gentler tra transition, because mm -hmm. if you're, you have that opportunity to join a group, and you have some athletes that have already been out of school a few years, and some older athletes, like say, someone like myself, who was still running in their 30s, you know, it's like you kind of have a lot of experience to draw on. And I think that helps smooth that, like that tough transition as well. Someone with your college credentials would just so easily get a sponsorship in today's, you know, times. Right. That's 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 interesting. And, and then just like, you know, having that phase where you're living off of prize money is so, <laughs> so, so tough, like and, 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 and that pressure to not just make some prize money at a race, but like make make a significant amount of prize money is is crazy. That seems really, <laughs> really, really, really tough. And you and you went and you went into you, you made your first Olympic team with without a full full contract. Is that I know I should actually I should have 
I definitely skipped over a major piece there. So in, <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot. To, yeah. To well, but this yeah. is important since I'm still working with Adidas today. <laughs> um, like, so basically it was one of those things that worked out for the best. Like I lost my Reebok contract, but when I won that race down in Jacksonville, Florida in 1998, the Adidas rep was there and he was like, you don't have a sponsor. Like what's, you know, what's going on with that. So that was like the beginning of my relationship with Adidas, which, you know, I'm still working with now. So that definitely gave me the support, you know, to, to keep things going. And the, con the, the fact they were interested gave me the confidence to like later that year, I left my, I went part-time and then I left the job and that gave me both the support and the confidence, like to be able to do that. Great. Yeah. Totally right place at right time too of yeah. knowing that you were ready to do that and then have I always think how everything happens for a reason. It's exactly. Like <laughs> you were itching to get out and the signs were all pointing the right way because you were like putting into the universe, I guess. Exactly. And I yeah, I think it's it's that classic one, you know, cliche when one door shuts, something else opens. So as long as you're yeah, looking for the opportunity. And like winning races. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I said, you have to be ready to <laughs> like take the people. opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so you are married to Terrence. And where did you guys meet? I think this is a crucial part of the story of um, you guys as like kind of a unit traveling and like event and you're running as well. So where did you guys first meet? So we, we met my freshman year in college, but we didn't like hang out at all. So like Terrence was a fit was a fifth year senior when I was a freshman at Villanova. And like, I was pretty much just like on the party circuit my first year. And I had like kind of a whole, you know, bottomed out in the middle of my first year. So it's just like, something we else we have in common. Right. So, <laughs> so we didn't, it's like, that's when we met. And I like, remember a couple very brief conversations with him, but we didn't actually hang out until the summer before my senior year when like I worked at the Bryn Mawr Running Company, which is down the street from Villanova and Terrence was working there and actually like that he was going down to DC for workouts um, and like living in Philly and doing that commute. So that's when that summer is kind of when we met and actually started hanging out. <laughs> and then we were married like three years later. Wow. Yeah. I, th I would have totally thought you guys like met during that school time period. Yeah. So we were there, but not like not really together. <laughs> well, have your own experiences. So yeah. you mentioned that you and Terrence both moved to Mammoth Lakes was the next step. Yeah, so basically we did the commuting to DC through like 2004. Um, and Terrence in the meantime was coaching a lot of people like in the Philadelphia area, uh, like a lot of recreational and like sub elite runners. And he decided to end like his elite career at the end of 2004. And he'd always had a really good relationship with coach Joe Vigil. And Vigil kind of had been mentoring him for the past couple years when we went out for some training camps. So when Coach V Hill decided and Bob Larson, they didn't want to travel all the time. Like they didn't want to be going away for four to six weeks, you know, to do camp with the athletes. Um, Terrence took over as coach to the team. So it was something he was kind of like, like building up to, to that point. And then in 2005, he took over as coach with, with Bob and with V Hill helping um, of Mammoth Track Club. And we moved from, um, later that year from being like based in Philadelphia to buying a condo and being based out in Mammoth Lakes. Wow. So did you guys, <laughs> did you make a team? What, what year was your first team, U.S. team that you made? And my first team was, 
on the track was the Olympic year in 2000. So when you, in 2004, you were still being coached by Matt Sensiewicz yes. senior. Okay. Yes. Yes. And Terrence had always been obviously helping like along the way since like I saw, you know, I would see Matt once at least once every couple of weeks, but you know, mm-hmm. was married to Terrence. So he was <laughs> handling some of the daily, you know, like daily stressors. <laughs> yeah. And I can just, just having seen Terrence go, go over and, and, and help a, a stranger in the gym who's, who's doing something <laughs> dangerous with their like lifting form. I'm, I can tell that like you definitely would have would have been able to to provide some input, you know. Right, to manage yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and 2004 was the year you ran the Olympic marathon. Yes. In yes. Athens, which is kind of one of the most iconic things in in the world, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that race was also just crazy because you know, they ran it in the evening, like because of the heat, but it was literally like a hundred degrees at the start. And it was like a dry heat, but it's still just like, you know, crazy to think we were running, you know, a race in that, in that weather. What is, did, because it was the Athens Olympics, and I think this is something we can talk about. And Daniel definitely wants to talk about your other U.S. performances as well, which I would love to hear about. But as the thing we talk about in track and field the most is being an Olympian and so 2004 in Athens, did you find that that Olympics was extra heightened because it was in the birthplace of the Olympics or um, was each experience kind of the same level of excitement? I mean, for me, like each like each of the three teams I made was the same level of excitement. They were just all like each place hosting it was just really different. Like, because honestly, like it was it had more, I would say, like historic meaning going like back to Athens. But like in Sydney, they probably threw the biggest parties. <laughs> and it was just like, it was just a, a different atmosphere that way. Is it like when you were done competing, you could just go into the city and everyone was following the Olympics and like every event. And you could talk about anything going on with like, say any person on the street. And it was like this huge celebration. And I kind of feel like to me, that seemed unique to Sydney, you know, in Beijing, like it was like, you know, they had their own vibe as well. Like it was like the crazy, you know, amazing opening ceremony, but, you know, a little bit different vibe, like outside of that. So I feel like they were all equally as intense in terms of competing, but just like, you know, bringing something different each place that hosted. It's kind of crazy to think about how (laughs) you would be in all those different places. Did you participate in any of the parties after your races? Um, I definitely did a lot more partying the first time around, (laughs) like in Sydney. Um, And I said it was almost like it was built for that as well, just because um, the whole city was just like partying itself. Um, And also because unfortunately, I did, I actually got the flu when I was there, it was going around the village. And I not that I mean, where I was, I I probably would have been tough for me to make the final anyway, because there was rounds in the 10k back then. And Um, like we had, Dina had a, her Achilles was injured, so she didn't make the final. And our one other woman, Libby Hickman, um, she scraped into, or she made the final and I think she finished like last or second to the last, but did really great job to make it there. But I don't think I was as fit as her. So it was like, I basically, what I'm saying is I was done early. So that just opened the door to just like, you know, even though I was coming off being sick to try to have fun and enjoy it, you know, as much as I could enjoy the whole experience which I was also grateful for moving forward because I felt like each one I was trying, um, I was 
probably being even more serious each go round. So it was like, I'm, I was glad I had that experience of just trying to like do everything and participate in everything. Like I went to tons of other events the first time around, um, and things like that. Whereas by the time I got to Beijing, um, it was still fun, but I was definitely treating it a lot more like business as opposed to just like trying to take it all in. Is that something that you would recommend to a very fortunate athlete who would also make three Olympic teams to kind of have that same strategy of enjoy the first games and then try to crack down? Or it has, do you think it's gotten so challenging to make teams that you're, you'd recommend someone you were coaching just to be a professional? Yeah. I, well, I think I would re- like try to find like a better balance, you know, like I think I could have like for me looking back, I still I definitely really enjoyed Beijing, but I could have been a little looser with it and had the same like type of performance, which I ended up getting injured. But and that was part of like the stress and the reason Mm -hmm. I feel like I was taking I was getting like therapy every day so I could make it to the line, which is like a little bit of a different vibe. Um, But I think just trying to find that balance, like going to the opening ceremonies and experiencing that, but then, you know, just not like just trying to balance it, but also like not losing sight of what you're there to do. And because we, we, I'm, we don't know what's going to happen in the future. You know, it's like, you could make mm-hmm. five teams like <laughs> Abdi, or, you know, you could, you could be like, you can make one and you move on with your life and, and do something else. So I think it's like just trying to find that balance of taking it all in while still giving yourself a chance, like to compete to the best of your ability. Did you find parallels to like your, you know, you're talking about, um, I know you like your freshman year of college, you said you're, you know, just, (laughs) just having fun mostly and not, and not taking it very seriously. Was there kind of parallels to that in terms of like, once you went pro and obviously, you know, there's a baseline seriousness once you're pro, but like in terms of, you know, kind of enjoying things and, and I don't know, do do you you know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I know what you're saying. Like, I think like for me, I, it's not an exact parallel because it like, for me, basically when I bottomed out, like in college, my freshman year, like at the biggies championships, I, in the indoor season was lapped twice by my teammate. And that was, <laughs> I ran, I ran 1836. I was, my teammate was really good. She was 10 K collegiate record holder, but still I got lapped. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was like kind of when I hit rock bottom and was like, I got to pull myself together. Like this is ridiculous. Like kind of, you know, saying to yourself, like, what are you doing? Like, uh-huh. and what opportunities are you wasting here? So right. like for me, that was like a bigger turning point than probably like things I would have experienced post-collegiately. I think I was just kind of like gradually learning along the way post-collegiately. And I, I think even by then had a better grasp of like, um, like looking at the year in cycles and being really serious through a championship. And then, you know, when you get through the end of the season, you know, taking your break, doing whatever you want to do, having like that lower key fall where you're putting base work in, but you're not, you're still pretty like low key. You're not restricting when you go out or all that type of thing. So I think, I think I like already, I would say I learned that kind of like just freshman to sophomore year in college. And it wasn't as big of a transition um, when I went from like collegiate to pro. I definitely had a very similar experience with Abby D'Agostino being my teammate (laughs) where you have these bright shining stars that you can get on. You feel like you can get away with something because you're under the radar and they're just kind of pulling you along. But when they leave, you're completely exposed and you're like, what am I doing? I (laughs) I need to get it together. And I could, I could be good too. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think it's like just 
making that mental shift is so important. And that's like another thing, you know, looking back, um, like I made this huge transition from freshman year in college to sophomore year because I, you know, didn't qualify for nationals, didn't even get a provisional time, even when I started trying harder at the end of my freshman year, but I won my first title and actually outkicked the same teammate who had lapped me twice, like at the end of my sophomore year. And when like, I'm good friends with um, Villanova coach Gina Bracaccio. And, you know, what, after I was out of school a couple of years, she was like, hey, do you mind if I look at that training log that like, what, I want to see what you did from freshman to sophomore year. And she's like, this is it. I'm <laughs> like, yeah, I, I ran like, uh, you know, maybe 40, 45 miles a week. And it was like, I was just, it, it was like, I made that mental shift of like, I'm going to, no matter what I'm doing, like if I'm it's summer, I took some summer school, but then I would go like up to the Hamptons for the weekend. But I'd be like, I'm going to get my run in no matter what I'm doing, like the night before, whatever. So it was like just more of that mental shift. And I did just enough training that they could get me in shape when I got back to school that year. But it was just that mental commitment and believing that, that I could do it was like more important than the specific workouts I was doing over the summer. And do you, do you, do you consider yourself kind of like having a certain amount of, I don't know, quote unquote talent coming out of high school? Like when you're coming to college, yes, you had a lot of fun, but you were a pretty talented high school runner. So you probably had some expectations to be successful in college. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I saw my, I saw myself as like good, but not great. Like I, I didn't have like a t clear, you know, feel on how good I could be, but Basically, when I went to school, for some reason, I had this like beginning where everything just went perfectly, even though it shouldn't have. So like the first like six to eight weeks of school, I like scored third for the team in the first meet. I ran like my cross country PB. My classes didn't seem very hard. I was going out all the time and it just seemed to work. But then like midway through the season, I just started getting like worse and worse and like ran terrible at NCAA champs. But luckily the team like didn't need my score to win. Um, but, and when I kind of was hitting those lower points, like later in indoor season, it was, I just kind of looked at like the athletes that I'd raced in high school and I knew like, I'm like, okay, well, I, you know, used to race them at New York state champs and they're making, they're all American, like they're making NCs. It was like, well, there's a reason I can't do that. And then mm -hmm. it's like, when I got to that level, I was like, I remember being in a race the beginning of my sophomore year where I think there was five of us at a K to go. And I was like, Oh, fifth is really good. And I was like, why are you settling for fifth? Like you can beat these people. And I was second, like my collegiate record holder teammate was still ahead of me, but you know, just making like those, uh, those kind of connections. And for me, I think it was like setting realistic goals along the way. Cause I never thought of myself as like a super talent. I like, I always felt like I have to work hard and de develop what I have. That's what I was hearing a lot from from what you're saying was, yeah, just like those kind of incremental progressions. And obviously you end up, you know, running insanely fast times. But that seemed like that seems like a really healthy mentality that maybe you kind of intuitively had um, throughout high school. I don't know. But um, just like being able to just kind of be like, all right, I just need to, you know, first meet, meet of the season, just top three on the team. Those those kinds of of things um, in terms of and then that's that seems like the kind of mentality that would get you you know to three three olympic teams yeah wow. i think the way I, I think most of my career i looked at it like i would have like what 
realistically I can do like say based on my workouts right now, but I'd always be thinking about, you know, kind of like opening the door to dream of like, if you're in that race and on the perfect day when you feel great, what could I run? So I would say like, you know, looking back on my career, I hit that in the three K. Like, I don't think I had the talent to run much faster than eight thirty five. I probably left a little bit on the table in the five K, but it was like, I think that combination like of being able to hit achievable goals, but also leaving that door open for something like exceptional, like if, if the opportunity presents itself. Yeah. But, and then capitalizing on that opportunity, kind of like Dana was saying earlier with the, the 835 in Monaco, which is right. <laughs> how, how did that, how did that race play out? Like, had you had you run at Monaco uh, previous to that three? No, that was my first time, so I was super excited, like just to to get confirmed in the race and yeah. <laughs> have the opportunity to go. Was it was it a late a late second confirmation, or did you did you know? No, that- I think I I broke. 15 earlier that season so I was at that level where I did um like but I've had the first time I broke 15 I didn't get confirmed until the day before the race so that was that was a just like fighting and been like please you know like getting uh Ray Flynn did a great job to get me that opportunity (laughs) and for people who don't know Monaco is like kind of the I want to say the diamond of the diamond league the fastest typically the fastest races and one of the hardest to get into they what I've heard about it is that they very carefully select the fields and the pacers and even to the nth degree of where people stand on the line knowing their racing styles. I don't know if that's true, but it kind of seems to be like they they set everything up for for fast racing. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think they set it up to be fast and it is I it has to be a, a super fast track, obviously. Um, yeah, I was, that's one of those times I was just super excited to be there and also having like my friend Gina Bricaccio, who's 10 years older than me, who'd also run on the circuit, you know, having her like remind me to like take it all in and be like, Oh, I I remember that it was such a good time. Like, make sure you go out and like walk around and like just enjoy the whole meet. So I really did that. Mm. Um, and, and also took the, you know, opportunity to run, you know, a great race as well. But the race was funny because, I mean, I ended up pretty much racing Shalane and Kim Smith, the whole race. So people that I could race, you know, here at Stanford um, or wherever. I mean, there was obviously a bunch of us in there, but they were the two that um, we were kind of all going back and forth in the race um, because they're a Moroccan woman, one who had since tested positive a couple of times, but, um, she kind of, she asked for a, I think the race went out in like 28, which I didn't go out in the first 228, but she, she tried you to, you could inch- see my face right now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No, she tried to inch the pace up like in the call room. It, yeah. So it was a little crazy, but she, I don't think she just thought she was in the right race, <laughs> but the rest of us kind of just did like, did our thing, you know? So, and there was a lot of PRs that day. So, <laughs> Yeah, I find those days when everyone PRs, you're kind of, you're just happy for everyone else because, as you said, like you, you don't think you could have run much faster than that. So right. You yeah. Happy for everyone around you, and I think that's one of the coolest things about our sport is it's pretty individual, but you can still have these relationships. You mentioned Dina Castor, right. um, all these other women that are your your peers, and it seems today that they're still your good friends as well. Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, like you were saying, it's, there's potential for both individual and like collective success. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting when you're, when you're, when you've got training partners in terms of like, whether you're in the same event or different events, and it's always easier to 
be really happy for your teammate who's not in your event who does really well. You know what I mean? Or but a foreign been, teammate. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Who's not, <laughs> never going to take a, a U.S. spot from you. Exactly. But you've been, you know, you've made Olympic teams in three different events. And I don't know what you, how you mentally identified as, you know, like, were you just, I'm a 10K runner when you made it in the 10K or... Were you always kind of like thinking of you? I feel like the 5K is your favorite. Yeah, the 5K was definitely my favorite. And like coming out of college, I just didn't like I didn't feel like I had enough speed to run the 5K. So my just my thinking was naturally I'll just move up to the 10K and that's my best shot to make the team. And I did make a team there. And as you guys know, the way I run, I don't really have the prettiest form. I kind of shuffle around. So it would kind of been always, people had always talked about me, like she's going to be a great marathoner someday. Wait till she moves up to the marathon. But I almost feel like I was letting like kind of that out external influences, like, like it was, it was more that than maybe just like me, like truly thinking the marathon was like my favorite event. So I actually totally bombed my first two marathons. And then, um, you know, I got it together and did a good job and got that last, I scraped onto the the team, um, getting the last spot at the 26 mile mark in 2004. Um, and from there I was like, okay, I think I'm figuring it out now. So like my goal at the Olympics was to be top 10 and I, I was not top 10. I was like, <laughs> it was a struggle fest. And I was like, I, th- I was 34th and I was like trying to look up and see where Dina was. And she's so far ahead. I couldn't even see her. And people like, you start to ask at that point. Cause it's like, I'm just trying to get to the finish. Like who's, who's going to meddle and people like get, don't know. So I was just like <laughs> trying the whole time to figure out how Dina was doing oh, man. And, and didn't know until I got to the stadium. Um, but what I think actually like kept my career going was in 2006, like I had, I kind of ran a marathon early in the season. I ran a small PB in March, um, in the Rome marathon. And then I had this chunk of time to just train for track with the attention of also running, um, a late fall marathon. But I hadn't really worked on, you know, actually trying to hone in my speed like for that much and actually work on more on mechanics. And that gave me the chance to start doing that. And I think just having that strength, it was like the perfect combination of working on speed and having all the strength from these marathon buildups that I finally like, you know, broke 15 that summer. And once I did that, I was like, I want to run the 5k. (laughs) Like, I just want to maximize my ability because that's my favorite event and just, you know, see if I, I'd also never made an Olympic final, like on the track. Like, so that was something that I was like, okay, I was sitting in the stands in Sydney watching the 10k and the 5k finals. And even though I ran the marathon, I was still sitting in a stand watching all the track finals in 04. So that was something that was like really motivating to me. Definitely a bucket list item and that you don't even realize is on the bucket list until you're in the stand. That's a very unique experience to an athlete is the sitting on the sidelines and knowing yeah. you should be there right. where <laughs> other people just can't relate. But I just got like a, a rock in my stomach thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was my whole career uh, uh, at Oregon, basically, because so many meets were hosted at Oregon and I was just not qualifying for regionals, not quali- <laughs> you know, like only, didn't make a Pac-12 team until my fourth year. And it was it was. It's the most motivating. No, absolutely. So unpleasant. So unpleasant. Especially when, as a track fan, you kind of want to be enjoying that experience. Right, it's But it's it's (laughs) conflicted, yeah. Yeah, for sure. One thing I wanted to 
to really highlight with you is, I mean, we're kind of bopping around your career back and forth, back and forth, is your exceptional longevity and kind of the joy that you speak to all these races. I think I can, I'm not with you right now, but I can almost hear in your voice of it's, these are all like incredible, amazing experiences. And they happened over a period of 20 years. And you just, I think this is kind of um, something that in one of the podcasts I listened to was right after you wrote um, your blog post about um, just was similar right after the Mary Kane conversation. And Mary Kane was my previous podcast host, but kind of how you wanted to tell a story about your like your really positive experience within the sport with your coaches right. and kind of like Daniel was touching on this progression over time where you really kept improving. What do you think has contributed to the joy that you had in the sport and kind of that drive to continue improving your year? I think um, as like as a professional, the definitely looking at the season in cycles, I mean, in terms of just staying healthy and not being, you know, like energy deficient and struggling with some of those type of things, we're just like making sure to be like, there was times where you're going to be really intense, but then there's other times where you're not and you're, you're both mentally recovering and like letting your body recover. And I feel like I always had those cycles. So I think like that was a huge like contributor to my longevity. And like as a young athlete, I think even though I was like, it's hard to explain because I, I would say I wasn't over specialized. I mean, even though, I mean, I was, I wanted to get an athletic scholarship for running. I was really into it, but it was kind of like what, like I remember getting mad, like when I didn't win my indoor state meet, my, when I was, uh, it was probably my senior year, you know, so I went out and I did the hard cool down. Like that's obviously going to know do no good, but I went out and did that. And then, uh, you know, I was like angry and then like we drove home. It was at Cornell. I was home in an hour. And I'm like, what are we doing tonight to my friends? You know, it's like, it was like, I got, you know, I was into it, but then I was out of it. And I, mm-hmm. I wasn't like one of those people. I mean, some people, I feel like I wasn't like great at music and art. It's not like I had all these other things that I really wanted to pursue. But like, when I try to think like, why did I not, you know, go down certain paths or struggle with certain things? I feel like it was kind of just that turning it on and off. Um, even as a young athlete that I, you know, it was just on to the next thing and I'll come back to it later. But I feel like it just, I wasn't getting, um, you know, it maybe just, yeah, there weren't really high levels of stress with it. And I always had the perspective, like, I know I have a certain amount, like a base level of speed, so I can work harder and improve later. I was kind of had that mentality. That's what college is for. So I got to college and then struggle a little bit, like just because I wasn't being very mature the first part of my freshman year and then started to put those pieces together and work a little harder. And I saw the improvement, but I didn't have that. I would say, you know, a hundred percent focus until like later in college and, and later on as a pro. Being so having, you know, the consistency of like making all these Olympic teams. And, um, I, I honestly don't know exactly what like kind of us teams you were making in between these Olympic teams, I know like a bunch, obviously. Um, but uh, did you ever have the like kind of windows where you felt like you're putting in the work and it didn't, you didn't kind of reap the rewards of that? Because uh, it's obviously so encouraging when, you know, right. you don't even increase your mileage your sophomore year, but just, you know, it's coming along. And those, those things are so exciting. But did you get through kind of some, some plateaus too? Um, d- yeah, definitely. I think like 
we kind of talked about setting those realistic goals, like, you know, was helpful. And like, for me, if I could make a team and, or place top three, like at a road championship, that was like super exciting. But I also, I think I learned and just had the ability to train with and still do like compete the best for myself, even with people that are better than me, you know, cause I, I trained for years with Dina and D- Dina's just better than me. You know, it's like, <laughs> I kind of caught up in the three K and five K almost, you know, in the three K at least, but you know, it's like, I feel like you have to, you know, be able to learn like to maximize what you can do and still like be okay with it and understand that you may not, I guess for me, you know, doing that and improving, um, and ticking off goals was enough as opposed to like, cause I didn't win all the time. You know, it's like, I would say the thing over my career that I'm proud of is making, being consistent and making all these teams, but I didn't win, you know, like Molly Huddle 30 us titles, but I think like you can still learn to work and learn from other people, even like if they're just, you know, a little bit more, a little bit better, but like I learned a ton from Dina. Um, in turn from, in terms of plateauing, I felt like, you know, I'm having, um, a conversation at a road race with some, like I was probably like 30 and the women talking to her like my age now in their mid forties. And they were talking about what year was their golden year. It was like Alana Meyer. And I don't remember who, and they would, they're like, yeah, you'll have this one year in your career where you hit, you know, every, you hit almost everything or you, you know, you're it's in that zone. And I remember thinking like, Oh, no, did did I already have my golden year? It was <laughs> did I like, miss it? Like, yeah, I was like, because like two th- it was coming off of the 2005 season, and I I made world championships, kind of ran mediocre. I ran small PBs, but I was like, you know, stuck around that 15-10 mark in the 5K, and like you know, 31-30 ish in the 10K, and I was like, well, oh, is this was that my golden year? You know, is this like where is this as good as I am? And then you know, it was like super exciting to me to be able to go beyond that. And that kind of like having the breakthrough in the 5k, like kind of rejuvenated my career. Cause I had so much more excitement to run fast in the 3k and 5k. And even in the 1500, like I, you know, ran a PB later in my career. So that kind of regenerated me. And then I had my golden year in like the year 2007. It, you just didn't know it. You're like, it better be coming. Yeah, exactly. I was like, oh man, has it already gone by? <laughs> I also saw you were you were running you even ran like an 800 or two like a lot of people when once they've run a marathon they don't there's no more 800s Um, but you know you were still working on that speed you know right like yeah I actually ran my best 800 when I was 35 um, at Stanford and also my best my quickest 200s I ran 26 something or no no I didn't never mind it's 27 low <laughs> I didn't break 27 I'll say 26 I'll be telling people 26 yeah something. but like I did that like yeah, at age 35 yeah so it's definitely like and I do I think that's such I get frustrated when I hear elite athletes start talking like oh I'm turning 30 I'm old I'm just gonna get slower it's like well it depends what you think I mean at mm-hmm. some point you're gonna get slower like I'm 45 I can't do I can't run <laughs> 27 would be like just ridiculous you know like, <laughs> obviously I can't do that now but you know it there you can depending on how you're looking at it it's like you can definitely run really well you know into your 30s and even I mean some people are killing it in their early 40s now too 
Do you see that there's a lot of pressures for elite women to step away kind of earlier than elite men? Because I feel like you mentioned Avdi, who's on his fifth Olympic team, but I feel as if there's just not as many women who do continue their career into their 30s. And if they do continue their career into their 30s, every year is, when are you going to retire? When are you going to get slower? Yeah, I think, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of people who have long careers now, but I probably, I'm thinking of people like that I know personally, like I think of Jill Pavey, who's older than me. And she's like, she was, you know, before the Olympics were postponed, still making a run at making like another Olympic team. Um, so I feel like there's a fair amount of women running really well in their, in their forties now. But I, I felt like, like for me personally, and I know it's different for everyone, kind of like the age, say like 38 to 42 was like different. And so it's like when you're 38 to 39, it's people, they're looking at you in terms of where you were when you were younger. So it's like, oh yeah, this person is getting a little slower. You're not hitting the same times. You're past your prime, which I mean, you may be, but then you turn 40 and it's like, whatever you do and you just that magic number, because it's now masters. I feel like that's like, it's seen very differently. But for me, then it's like, oh, you're running great again. Cause you can run 32, 30 as a, as a 40 year old. But when you were 39, you were, that wasn't seen the same way, which is a little bit, I feel like it's a little bit weird. So yeah. I feel like for people who do commit, who enjoy it and keep going and compete for a long time. Like I did. It's like, I feel like you kind of have to ride out if you are going to go that long, that last couple of years. And then it's like, you're kind of like rejuvenated when you turn 40. Um, and then, you know, for me, it was kind of like, once I hit 42, it's like, yeah, I really can't, I don't recover. I can't do these same types of things that, that I used to do. So you never formally retired and you're competing in all these masters races. Um, I kind of want to talk about your relationship with Adidas this whole time. Cause I feel like this long-term partnership with one brand is also pretty unique. And, uh, from my Googling of Jen Ryan's Adidas, <laughs> you have met some very cool people through this too. And yes. um, you're kind of included in, I think it's the goal is to be like a brand partner instead of just seeing this athlete, but you're in all these shoe launches and, creative things and ideas. Um, what has been kind of your relationship with Adidas been like over these years? I mean, I just feel like I've been re really fortunate. Like I said, things like one door closes and other opens. And a lot of times, you know, that's like it, it, there's so many more opportunities and I feel just really lucky to have been with the same brand and have a great working relationship, like over all this time. Um, and yeah, there's been tons of tons of fun opportunities like running the marathon with Carly Kloss and, you know, having like exactly go doing events with Adidas runners, having just different things. Um, you know, it's a little bit different than when I was competing, but like still like lots to like contribute to and look forward to. I know you missed it, Daniel, Carly Kloss in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. Yeah, I was on, I was, I, we were teammates when, when uh, you were, you were coaching her. Right. What well, you you were, you, yes. were, you were coaching her a little bit to the lead up. You didn't just run it with her. Right. Weren't you? Yeah. No, I, yeah, I was, I was coaching her in the lead up and that, yeah, that was kind of like right at the end when, when I moved from, from Boston to San Diego. So, right. yeah. <laughs> so to talk about like the current state of the sport, um, what do you think are some positive things that are different now kind of in track and field COVID aside, um, but things that are happening that you are really happy about how they've ended up? 
And then on the other side of it, you could start being negative too, but just kind of some things you wish would have changed in the past 20 years, but haven't yet. Um, I mean, I feel like, like with my long-term perspective, I've seen like a lot of positive changes and, you know, even in terms of like looking at some women who are struggling with like eating disorders or, you know, like just nutrition deficiency syndrome, I just feel like it's a different, it's seen totally different now in a very, in, in a positive way from say, if we go back 25 years, because I feel like when, when people would maybe slip through the crack, like, because I haven't had any experiences with like coaches who are abusive. Like I just, I haven't had that experience. What I would say I saw when I was in college was some coaches who didn't like know how to handle the situation. So, and if they talk to an athlete and the athlete, you know, maybe when an athlete is going down a bad road, at that point, they don't really want help. They want to continue on that path. And, you know, they would tell the coach, oh, I'm fine, you know, to kind of tell them what they would want to hear back. And then it's like, okay, they're fine. And then it resurfaces when like, you know, two months later or six months later when now they're really not fine. And now maybe they've actually progressed to like a clinical eating disorder. Whereas I've seen the shift over the past 10 or 20 years where I feel like coaches are more able to identify that and have conversations now and get like in front of these things as opposed to waiting because they don't really know how to handle it. And I feel like there's a lot more resources now where they can send an athlete for help or someone who maybe understands whether this person like has a clinical problem or they don't fully understand how to feel themselves and where that line is and where they need to go. So I feel like that's a huge positive because I feel like uh, most people, like people that I know, it's like they have the right intentions. And I feel like we've learned like how to handle these things better. Um, and that's like, a, I mean, a shift I've seen, um, like, I feel like there's a collective shift, like over the past, like 10 to 15 years. Yeah, I definitely think that there, it seems like there in my years of running, there has definitely been a shift in at least how things are worded in the conversations about eat disordered eating. And it feels like it's just getting so much more nuanced and hidden. So the people who do have um, those issues, it's doesn't really come out very easily. And it's... Yeah, I, I definitely kind of sit in the same realm as you where I personally haven't struggled. So I do have a hard time like connecting in that area because I have had pretty positive experiences in the running right. world. So I often find as like a professional runner, you are asked those questions and it is hard to give advice if you didn't personally have that experience. Right. But I do think it's like there's more resources out there now who like people who understand like where someone's at and can, you know, can we correct it before it continues like down that path? Do you do um, coaching and nutrition work with people now? That is also a part of your job, right? Correct. Right. Yes, I do. I, I'm a health coach and I'm the wellness coach for our team. Um, most of, so like I, yeah, I, kind of, I would say I do like a little bit of everything. <laughs> I love that you have all the hats on. It's kind of like your career too. You did a little bit of all the events. You're doing a little bit of everything now. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I just do what's needed. <laughs> so this is definitely something I wanted to ask Daniel to ask you. So, um, oh but <laughs> this is the kind of Mount Rushmore of American distance running and Daniel, 
I want to get your opinion of where do you see Jen within that, and I want Jen to <laughs> see where she sees herself. Well, oh man, that's you're you're putting you're putting Jen on the spot there. Um, I'll put you uh, on the spot first. Yeah. So. Well, oh, oh, and I feel it. I feel I feel very much on. So, and I, what you're referencing is is I I I had this whole argument. <laughs> um, it was last Fourth of July actually, about how like because uh, you know again like you know for some reason you're a little under the radar or just recency bias or whatever it is. Um, like I, I was, I was saying you're in the top 10, you know, female American distance runners of all time. And I mean, just the, you know, the, from, from the, you've got the time, you're checking the times, you're checking the Olympics, um, all, all the boxes and, and doing it at a time where, you know, especially coming out of college, you didn't have that support and stuff. So anyway, that, that was, that was my and, opinion. And to add on to that, I think that one of the reasons why I started this podcast is there's often similar voices of the same couple people heard all the time. And I find that in order to learn and become a better athlete in your sport, you need to educate yourself and you're a phenomenal role model for everyone and you've accomplished so much. But for some reason, do you think that you've kind of been not as at the forefront of like this media or I, maybe this isn't the right way to ask the question, yes. but kind of I feel like there's some similar names that are heard all the time, and you should be included in right. that. So we're doing our part here. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> Thanks, you don't, maybe you don't feel the same way. No, I, I, no, I, to, I totally understand what you guys are, are getting at. And I guess I, I'm trying to think of the order I'd want to say things. I would say, like, when I was a little bit younger, you know, I would let, like, I would let that bother me. You know, like when I was trying to make my third Olympic team, it's like, well, you know, I'm as good as these people and everyone talks about them. But then at the same time, they'd won medals. So that's like, mm -hmm. fair enough. Um, but one of the things I think, you know, by nature, like you guys both know me, I'm just not super outspoken unless I feel like something is really important. And that's why I chimed in when I wrote that blog last fall, because I felt like I can't not say something. Just the way the conversations like had like, I felt like they started in one place and then five deviations later, I felt like, you know, I'm going to say something because I had all these great experiences that I would want like a young girl to have. And it's been my life for the past 20 years. So I think it's just in my nature to hold back until I'm either like forced or I just feel that something is so important that I'm going to say it. So, you know, I, I think as in like, just over the years, now that I'm a little bit older, I feel like that's just who I am. And I like, so appreciate you guys like having me on and sharing my story, but don't feel like there's a chip on my shoulder. Cause it's like, it's like, it just, it's who I am. And like, you know, I know that like, even, you know, I'll just influence who I'm meant to influence. If that's yeah. like, so if that's like someone on our team, if it's like some, like I can tell when I connect with, you know, young athletes, it, cross-country camps and I'm talking mm -hmm. with them. So I'm like, you know, I'll make the impact that I'm meant to make. And I don't want to try to be someone I'm not because I'm, you know, it's just who I am. <laughs> I love, yeah. I love that. I'll influence who, who I influence or whatever. I think that's great. And then it sort of, that all reminds me of one of my favorite things that Terrence said in, an, in another podcast, which was, he was asked about his legacy and he said like, forget me tomorrow. I don't care. Oh, I think I remember um, that. That's a very, that was with Mario. Yeah. That's yeah. a very Terrence. Yeah. That's exactly. a very Terrence Connor. <laughs> well, I think it's kind of relevant to track and field. I mean, we're all in this very small, tight bubble and we could get heated about why you aren't included in 
or these things, but no, beyond like running, like people don't know. And you almost have to like re-explain your sport all the time. So I think you, your attitude is definitely something that I strive to because I think we can often be so close to the sport mm-hmm. that we don't even think about track and field in the scheme of the sporting world as, you know, sport number 12. Right. <laughs> Maybe. Right. Not when F-I. it's like your late life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But that's also why I really enjoy, you know, being working with the athletes on our team because it's, we are in this such a like elite distance running. It's such a niche thing that like, it's like, great that, you know, I have the opportunity to like share my experiences because it is, yeah, like it, it is kind of unique. Like there aren't all that many of us, you know, so it's fun that way. <laughs> yeah. There's always those conversations of your professional runner. What is that? How does that? Yeah, exactly. Airplane conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly to them, it's, if you, once you say the O word, it's, then it's boom. Right. Right. I understand what you're doing. Right. <laughs> I remember now. So, speak, I, you said airplane conversation. So I have to one 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 of my most specific memories from BAA was flying with Emily Lapari, where her seatmate was trying to ask her what she did, and she kept on being like, "It's not interesting." She kept on deflecting <laughs> it for like half an hour, and he's like, "No, but seriously, what do you do? You what? travel for work?" Like, what? he's like, "It's not. Let's talk about you." Like, she was just, <laughs> didn't want to have that conversation. Um, yeah, it, it can. I understand just because it can be a commitment. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Especially yeah, when you're locked in on that plane right. and you're like, okay, I'm going to have to explain everything about running for two hours. Right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. An, unprom- <laughs> an unprompted podcast. It's the, what do you do? Oh, I'm a professional runner. Oh, what is that? Oh, like the Olympics. Right. Then, I, then it makes sense to them. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I, have, I have a couple like fun questions too. Um, what is your favorite American road race? Hmm. I I have two. I would say, like sentimentally, it's always Gate River Run because I that was like my first professional win that and got me in touch like with Adidas and kind of set me on the right path. And I also won it two other times. And I think I've like you know for a long career like I won five U.S. titles and three were in Jacksonville. So that one's definitely very like sentimental to me. And I just love Carlsbad because it's a 5K and it's San Diego. So I've always loved that one. So those would be like my favorite too. <laughs> I thought you'd say Carlsbad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now you got, you are co-coaching with Terrence at the mission. Now uh, Golden, Golden State. Yes. <laughs> I'm not... You know what? I got to get there with that one. Yeah. Golden um, Coast track club. Golden Coast. Golden State. I know. It's not the Warriors. <laughs> yeah. Right before the quarantine. We got to give ourselves our brain yeah. a little. Yes. Um, how have you guys starting to create this something bigger? It seems like more than you have your elite division where you have Chris O'Hare and Nikki Hiltz and Eric Avila and a bunch of other Emily Lampari from far and all these other people but it seems like you guys are putting into a ton of work into this um, greater than just yes. side of it. Is that something that you're closely involved with? You mentioned that you're in the, uh, the nutrition coach and um, one of many hats with that. So is that, um, how, what has your role been in that? So, well, basically we had lots of plans that, like you said, we, we launched our new site right before the pandemic. So immediately, like we, you know, we want to have 
be involved in the community. We want to do group runs, like we want to do some other events. But like our first plan was to do some of this up at Carlsbad and that was like canceled. So right now, you know, it's like everything is kind of like building an online community um, and we'll basically just see where things are and when we can actually start, you know, getting out there and doing like things with the public. Um, and so right now it's, we have a lot of like free training. We have like, um, paid plans that have like more details as well. And we're shortly, we're going to have like more nutrition and mindfulness, like up on the site as well. So it's kind of, it's all a work in progress and it's all also evolving. Cause at this point we may be more virtual, like than in person. So we're kind of, yeah, like fi figuring that all out, <laughs> but it's kind of a collective effort. It's something that Terrence and I want to do. And also like the team wants to do is do as well. So it's kind of been like a full collective effort. I love that. And does San Diego kind of have a, does they, do they have a running community built in? I mean, you guys lived in Boston for, how long were you in Boston? Five years? Like three four, years? four years. Four years? Yeah. Yes. And Boston already has kind of the history of running and these communities and things like that. But does San Diego have that running culture? I mean, San Diego definitely does. I, I think there's like always room for more because it's such a big population here. And I mean, a big community of runners. Um, but there's definitely, yeah, it's, I feel like it's kind of a different vibe than Boston. Like maybe, oh, like yeah. Boston, yeah, you know, obviously, but less um, hardcore. Like, yes, exactly. But it's definitely a huge running community, like huge triathlon community and just really active. Um, so I think, you know, there's kind of that mix about here. If you have people who are Boston qualifiers, that's what they're into. That's like what they're training for. But then you have people that just want to do their first 5k or, you know, the people that are super excited to do the, you know, do the pride virtual 5k that we're going to host that they've never, you know, even done a race before, but they're just super excited about it, about the cause, super excited about Nikki and to go out and do something like they've never done before. So I feel like we have out here, you know, like a mix of like of, of a lot of different like types of runners. It seems like that suits you really well of having all these sorts of other things going on as well. Yes. And I mean, I've enjoyed like in my like own, like, you know, Terrence writes the workouts and like, you know, does that for the team. Like I have some people I've coached individually and I've coached like a woman who finished New York a couple of years ago who'd never run a step in her life and like coached someone who qualified for the Olympic trials. So I like, you know, enjoy that challenge of figuring out kind of, you know, how to get this person where they need to go in their, given their time constraints, job, family, et cetera. So I kind of like, like that as, as, as a challenge and trying to maximize what someone can do. So if someone wants you to be their coach, where they, can they find you? Right now it's still through my website at genrines.com. And if they're interested in Golden Coast, that's goldencoasttrackclub.com. Yes. yes. So you can find us like either place. Yeah. I know I signed up for the 5k. Sweet. Excited about <laughs> yes. it. The it pride month 5k put on my Nikki Hills going on. Um, Daniel, do you have any last questions for Jen before my final question? Yeah, well, okay. So just this, and this is like, I want to hear about especially talking about like, uh, Dina Castor and uh, like, if there's any specific workouts from Mammoth that you, you remember. Ooh. Um, those are those are always my favorite my favorite <laughs> stories because I've I've heard some just insane insane things done at you know seven thousand eight thousand plus feet. 
Yeah, I think my favorite, I mean, she's run crazy fast on Green Church Road on the Tempo Road. Um, but like, I mean, something you two did together. Oh, maybe, that we did together. Like yeah. Okay, well, this is not like a, this is not our biggest athletic accomplishment. However, we had this long run leading up to 2002 World Cross Country Championships. We went up for the last couple of weeks before traveling to Ireland. And I had been kind of sick after Cross Country Nationals. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to try to run 90 minutes today. Like Dina was going to run two hours or a little further. And the weather was bad. So we drove like down to Bishop with coach Larson and a couple of the guys. And so we start like this run, it started normal, like no problem. And then it kept getting like darker and darker. And then we were like, Oh, this is really bad. Maybe we better flip. So we, well, first we were going straight into a freezing cold wind, like on the way out and it's getting darker and darker. And then like, at some point we're like, this, this is bad. I think we better flip the wind also flips. And now we're running back and I'm sick <laughs> and just trying. And she's like, I don't, I don't care how far I'm going. I'm like frozen. We're just going to go back. Then we saw t- there was like a twister in the road and like, we're like, what are we going to do? Like we were like freaking out. There was like this dust twister on this road and we were, we couldn't find coach Larson's car. He had this, like, he, I think he drove Dina's car and it was a red SUV, but like we couldn't find it so now we're running into the cold wind like we somehow both lost our gloves and we went like off the trail to try we thought we saw red in the distance <laughs> so we basically just like bushwhacked to his car <laughs> and like dove in and like oh and I was God. like are you going any further she's like no so we both ran like 88 minutes yeah. and like call something else happened that I'm forgetting but the twister was kind of and just having like the cold wind the both like both ways was kind of the highlight so we just had some like crazy like crazy runs like that like not not really workout specific right yeah that's great (laughs) and now you're in san diego (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah now we're now we just deal with like 55 in rain as being a tough day (laughs) so running has taken you so many places around the world what are some of the the highlights and your your favorite places to run not going to steal chris chavez's infamous question which is if you could (laughs) run in the world with one person anywhere but kind of just you have run so many places around the world you've made so many teams olympic teams just kind of what are those like it doesn't have to be one just those rave runs that you remember i mean i I know we can't end on that (laughs) yeah no that was not the best run ever um it was memorable though it it was memorable (laughs) um i think like i've been thinking recently also because like I feel like I had so many opportunities and it was so much fun. Like, I hope like our athletes are going to be able to like, you know, travel as freely as we did in the past, because I think of the summers, like when we were based in Italy and those were definitely on like a couple highlights of like, you know, and even when like, obviously you're over there training for like a championship, it's not stress-free, but I had such like great times, like staying and being based in Luca for the summer in there's probably not one specific run, but just like the whole environment and like atmosphere and kind of, for me, I could easily morph into like the Italian or Spanish lifestyle because I like to stay up to one or two in the morning and not get up early. And I can be, that's like my jam. So I felt like being over in Europe, it like just really suited me. Um, And in terms of like one of my favorite runs, I don't know how to pronounce, but there's this trail that runs up above Barcelona 
And it's like, you can see the ocean and the city from there. And you run, you can also see like Olympic stadium and all that. And it's just like this nicely manicured dirt trail. Like that's probably my favorite run ever, but I, I don't know how to pronounce it. (laughs) You'll have to find it one day. Yeah. I had a friend, my friend who lives in the UK, like told me what it is. I just would have to like dig it out to be able to say it to you guys. And I'd still butcher it, but I do, I have it somewhere. So I know what it is. Yeah, I definitely hope we still have that uh, that opportunity. Um, I was trying to explain to someone recently. I'm like, I'm not normally here this much. Right. Like, I'm I'm really like not this available. I'm not being clingy. I'm just not this normally available. And every week on the calendar, I turn. It's like, oh, it's supposed to be in California this week. And I think it's going to be pretty hard next month with the Olympic trials. Just kind of that, yeah. another emotional breakup of the past four years. Um. So exactly. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Weird, weird time mentally. Yeah. It's, it's a, I mean, I just think back of like how like focused I was and how, I mean, and also how much I was like enjoying it. Like when I think back to 2008 and it's just so hard to think if that had just been like cut off, you know, it like at some point. So I hope, I hope we can, you know, be able to, to do all the same things next year. <laughs> Yeah, let's hope and pray. Well, thank you so much, Jen, for your time and Daniel for joining us in this ride. And I I hope people like just enjoy getting to know you a little bit better. I know I certainly did. And yeah, uh, well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah. (laughs) More Than Running with Dana Giordano is brought to you by the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. This episode was produced by Chris Chavez, music by Anna Sophia. I'm your host, Dana Giordano. Thank you for listening and thank you for running. The rest just pretend. I turn to people kissing in the stairwell. I want this day to end. Text my mama so I don't lose hope. I didn't learn anything I didn't know. Always yelling, get off your phone. Screw that, I'm going home. Did you hear that? Nah. I'ma take a zero Just call